we're talking about the most important person who ever walked upon the face of the earth. Can you agree with that? You can say amen occasionally if you agree with things. I, I really want to encourage you not to fan me, but to fan yourself and to express what God is doing in you. That's why what amens are all about. It's an affirmation about the goodness and glory and the grandeur and the majesty of our God. Amen? That's what amen is about. That's why you hear me so often say amen. Not to say anything about you. It's about God. By the way, how many of you know Joe who just walked in? Joe, who just walked in, raise your hand. That's Joe. Go ahead. You can raise your hand. We've been doing this this morning. There he is. And Joe and Jody, good to see them this morning. Now, as we are talking about this most important man, what are the two most important truths about this person whom we call Jesus? Are we getting it now? There are two identity markers, if you would, that cause him to be the most important person in the world. If one is diminished, then he is no longer who he is, who he says he is. If one is elevated over the other, he is no longer who he says he is. Both of these identities, this twin identity of Jesus, are fully functional and resident in him simultaneously. Do we understand that? So what are the two markers or identities? He is at the same time the son of God and the son of man. We must get this straight, not because we won't be saved if we get unbalanced, but if we got unbalanced, we, we, we just cannot appreciate the marvelous work of God in this huge mystery. You see, why is this a mystery? Because it's a revelation of God's Trinitarian nature. You see, what we see in this man, whom we see in this man, is a deeper revelation of who God is in himself. Let's please make sure we connect the dots and make it clear for ourselves. When we see this man who is at the same time simultaneously, equally, comprehensively in himself, the son of God and the son of man, when we see him, we are seeing the Trinity. Amen? If you've seen me, Philip, you've seen the Father. Remember John 14, 9. To see Jesus is to see the Trinity. Now, you may not believe it, but it, there's the Trinity wrapped in a man. Because as we'll find out, well, let me not jump ahead. So this union, this union of two natures is called, and I, every, there can be a few theological terms. What is it called? The hypostatic, hypostatic, what did you? Thank you. Hypostatic union. I think it's in your notes. It's the union of two natures. It's called the hypostatic union. And I want you to just know that because occasionally you will hear that word. And it's not, it's good to know certain things about our faith. So I'm going to go through what I've already gone through a little bit. It's so significant that we understand who this man is. And how this man is. When I say how, what I mean, how he functions, his character, 
How does it work? And we are very limited in the way we can explain this. Why? Because we are explaining divine, eternal truths with very finite words. Do we understand that? How do you describe a sunset in words? Can you really do justice to a sunset with words? Can you? Yes or no? No, but you can at least try to take the words, use the word that basically do the best we can with finite descriptions to describe something that is in a, in a verbal sense is indescribable. What you say is this, the sunset was this, that, and the other thing. And then you finally have to say, you just have to experience it. Are you with me? The same thing with God. By the way, this is the first time our lovely Brenda Tullis is back with us today. Yeah. So glad to see her back. So when we talk about the hypostatic union, when we talk about anything about Jesus, can you hear me if I say it that way, that low? If we talk about anything we say about Jesus, we are constrained with finite terms to talk about him who is infinite and who is of the mystery of God. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things. The mystery of who God is in himself has been made visible to us in a little bit, as they say, a little bit. We're just seeing the very top of the iceberg in this man. We're seeing God. Do we see that? Do we understand that? So the hypostatic union, this means, is this in your notes? Okay, it should be. This means that the son of God came into the world as the son of man. To save those whom the Father had known. Do you have Romans 8.29 in parenthesis? Okay. Romans 8.29. Whom the Father had known before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1.4. I just think we need to pepper everything we say with the word of God. So that means that the Son of God. This eternal one who is equal with the Father and the Holy Spirit. In the community of God, having always existed as God in himself, but not God by himself. This one has come into the world as the son of God. For what purpose? To save those whom the father had known before the foundation of the world. In this one man, Jesus Christ. Remember the man, Jesus Christ, is from 1 Timothy 2.15. I'm tired, 2.5. One mediator before God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. In this one man, Jesus Christ, the divine nature and the human nature dwell and function in perfect unity so that the eternal purpose of the Father might be fulfilled in and by him alone. Do we see that? As the son of God, why does he have to be both the son of God and the son of man? Why is it necessary? As the Son of God, the justice of God is fully satisfied in Jesus Christ. The Son of God came to satisfy the justice of God in himself. It is satisfied in Jesus Christ who, as the Son of Man, suffered the penalty of death for the sin of his people. Do we see the twin work? God's justice 
has been affronted by sin. And in order for justice to be maintained, because God is just, and he cannot allow injustice of any sort to exist in his universe without punishing it. We're not talking about social injustice. That's a demonic twist. I'm sorry. We're talking about God himself. Justice is who God is. Amen? Justice is who God is. How do we know who he is? Because it's declared the justice of God is declared, for instance, in the Ten Commandments. Now, any aspect of that justice of God, who he is in himself, the righteousness of this holy God, anything that's abrogated or broken or sinned against to any extent at any time must be dealt with by the wrath of God to be put away and to be destroyed forever from God's universe as existing and as continuing and as approved. So that is the requirement that God to be satisfied with his people His justice must be dealt with. Sorry, he must pour out his justice upon someone who must pay the price and the penalty. So the son of God is the one who is able to do that. And he comes into this world as a man in the man, Jesus Christ, as the son of man, as the Messiah, to experience the wrath of God of God against our sin and to experience the penalty of death in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Genesis 2.17, you remember that. And to experience the wrath, the penalty, the death that is required because of sin, this one must become a man in order to experience that. Why? Because sin came into the world through a man. Therefore, a man must pay the price. You remember that in Romans 5, 12 to 19. In, in, in second, sorry, 1 Corinthians 15, 44 and 45. I think those are the right verses. Do we see the necessity of the divinity and humanity in this one man? Oh, you're seeing it today. I emphasize this. Why? Because it's central. It's central to everything we believe in, everything that God has done and who he is. This is not, oh, well, if I don't understand it, no, no. It's like saying, well, mom, if I don't understand math that much, that'll be all right. How many of you moms would say okay with that? Uh, No. You have to understand these basics in order to function in society the way you should. Oh, you may get by. But you need to really know this in order to do well in society, right? We will now. now, Okay, so what we're going to do right now is look at the book of Hebrews to understand something of the significance of Jesus' twin identity, the hypostatic union. So just want to talk a little bit about the book of Hebrews. First of all, we use the word book euphemistically. What does euphemistically mean? Symbolically, you know, we just use that term to refer to it. It's not really a book. It was more of a sermon or a speech. It's that kind of a thing. It may have been a speech that was delivered literally to Jewish people that was written down and then passed to them. Or it could have been just a sermon in writing, whatever it is. 
And so Hebrews is a, a book. We're calling it a book, one of the books of the Bible, obviously. And it's important to know that, to understand that the Hebrews, first of all, that the book of Hebrews is not dealing with the, if you would, normal sins of people. I don't even like to say that, but I say normal in the natural sense. We, as God's people, sin in a natural, normal way. Are you, are you with me on that? Because some would say, well, it's abnormal for Christians to sin. I agree with you. But I'm putting it in the category of our flesh. In the flesh, as human beings who live in the flesh, our flesh rises up, and too often we cooperate with it by sinning. Is that correct? So the writer of the uh, book of Hebrews, come on in. Here's your, you want to sit here or here? Good morning. There it is. How many of you know this lady? How many of you know this lady? What is her name? Sue Silver. Remember her son, Donnie, and her husband, Donald. Listen, we're so glad to see you. So glad to see you. She's been sick, but she is one of the, you know, I'm sorry to stop on the machine. No, don't stop the machine. I've said this before. I'm not going to say it again. I'm going to say it again. You have people like Sue, people like Brenda, people like, let me, let me put this down so it's not. I mean, when you get to this age, you need somebody to help you dress. Believe me, I know about these things. <laughs> people like Anna. And, and, and I don't want to, you know, point out people. But what I'm talking about is we have people in this room who have physical issues. But unless they cannot walk they're going to get here because for them, the word of God is more important than giving in to their physical issues. I call them battle axes, a battle axe. The battle axe, you remember, do you remember what a battle axe is? It is the old, remember, Viking axe. And you didn't want one of these guys to swing that axe at you because it's going to knock you down and you're going underneath the power of the battle axe. That's what a battle axe is. These types of people and many of you in this room, in fact, all of you in this room to some extent because you're here regularly, you are a bunch of battle axes in faith. Thank God for you. You may give God a hand. So glad to see you soon. So, first of all, so important, if you heard this said in the scriptures, if you go on sinning willfully after having received the knowledge of the truth, there remains for you only a fearful expectation. And then he starts talking about devastation and fire. What are you going to think? How many of us go on sinning willfully? Only three of us? Come on, come on. How many of us sin willfully every day? Anybody not sin willfully? How many of you, when you sin, you know you're sinning? Okay, all of us sin willfully. There it is. I mean, we have to get to the truth. You know, isn't it interesting how we are as Christians? Everybody knows this about you. Right, Jason? <laughs> and so, 
See Jamal Jones sitting over there thinking he didn't see me. He kind of like that. No, Jamal Jones over there sins willfully every day. Look at him. Look at him. He ducking under the table. How can you say that about a pretty face like that? But it's true. It's true. And so the issue in Hebrews is not about our daily in the flesh sinning. Can you get that? It's not about that. Because if it is, then it is contrary, at least to 1 John. So there's something, something different here. The author's concern in Hebrews is to combat the threat of apostasy. The deliberate decision. Is that in your book? Underline deliberate decision. Undermine that. Underline that. It doesn't mean I was just deceived or my emotions got the best of me. It is a deliberate decision to do what? To reject and refuse Christ himself, this person whom we're talking about, and to go somewhere else or to leave. The problem in the Hebrews is with these people, these are Jewish people. This is before the fall of the temple. We believe that because the temple is still talked about as if it still exists, the temple services. And these are Jewish people in the Roman Empire who in some way are experiencing persecutions, whether it's neighborhood persecutions, and it very well could be from their own people, that you've now become a Christian. You're a Christian. You're out of the Jewish community. You can't buy. You can't sell. You can't go to synagogue. None of your friends. You are dead to us, Mary. We, you are dead to us. That's one of the per- It could have been political persecution, whatever. doesn't necessarily mean they were all being killed, but there was enough persecution there that some of these people were being tempted. Look, this is not worth it. I, I need to go back to my faith. I need to go back to the synagogue. I need to go back to the church from which I came out of. And because I just need to get out from underneath that. I need to leave this and go back there. I'll be better off. That's the, that's the temptation. Do we get the context? The sin is the sin of deliberate rejection and refusal of Christ. It is not the daily sins that we commit. Do not misuse Hebrews as many you will hear who teach and preach the word. Remember in John, Jesus is asking the disciples, Do you want to leave me? You know, do you want to leave me? Everybody's, you remember in chapter six, eat my flesh, drink my blood. We're getting out. And they all leave. Jesus said to them, do you want to leave me too? Do you want to leave me, Floyd, because of the issues in your life? We get tempted that way. Anybody has? We get tempted to say, why, Lord, why? And we get upset. We We get tempted. But you have to be careful. Because you don't want the temptation to become a reality. And what does Peter say in verse 68? Is it 68? Yeah, verse 68. Where shall we go? For you alone have the... Why? Come on. You alone have the words of eternal life. There's certain scriptures we need to know. You alone have the words of eternal life. Where are we going to go? Carrie, where are you going? You go back to Judaism or you go back to somethingism or you just walk out of the church and reject Christ. Where are you going? Where are you going? 
the answer to Hebrews is Peter's answer. Lord, where are we going? You're the only one who has the words of eternal life. So in order to combat this temptation, the Holy Spirit shows that Jesus is superior because he himself is the fulfillment of everything of the Old Testament. And Hebrews will show that he fulfills the four foundations of Judaism. The four foundations of Judaism. That's what this is about. So the Holy Spirit is showing this. If you were being tempted to apostatize, to leave the faith, do we get the, reason, the problem in, Ju uh, in Hebrews? The problem in the book of Hebrews is not, Renee, that you did the same stupid sin today as you did five minutes ago. It's not that. That's an issue, and that's a problem of a different nature dealt with differently. If you're being tempted to leave Jesus, the book of Hebrews, the author, Holy Spirit, is showing us where you're going because Jesus himself is the literal, total, comprehensive fulfillment of everything in, Gen in the Old Testament from Genesis 1 all the way to the book, end of book of what? Malachi. Jesus himself is the walking fulfillment of all that God was saying about himself, showing about himself promising about himself what verse did i just quote colossians 2 17 he is the fulfillment so let's see what we have here hebrews opens this way in verses one through three in the first chapter now look what he says here listen very carefully to the words because very often we go through the word very quickly god who? Theos, T-H-E-O-S, God himself, God. After he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets, what is that? The Old Testament. Uh oh, you're with me. Get it straight. You see, Warren, he's already started what? He's saying, after God, I'm talking about what God did when, Warren, in the Old Testament right now. That's where he starts this, the Old Testament. You see that? He talked he long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways. What? Signs, wonders, historical events, issues, examples. God is giving us hints and road signs and references and foreshadowings of himself and of his purpose for his people. That's what the Old Testament is all about. It is the preparation of our God after the fall, Genesis 3, 6, and he ate. God's continual purposeful movement to restore that which was fallen to be restored in one man. And everything after that verse is the history of God's purposeful movement to restore everything in his son who will be born of a woman named Mary. That's what those first words say. In these last days, what days is that? Since the day of Pentecost, since the resurrection, the last days. These are the last days. Not because we think we're getting close to Jesus' return. The last days is the new covenant people. The fulfillment of God's purpose 
in one man that has been now distributed to his people by the Holy Spirit as a result of the resurrection, ascension, glorification of the Lord Jesus. Do we get it? In these last days, God has spoken to us in son. In son. You may hear my phone going off. No, it's one of these robocalls. <laughs> Where was I? Oh, God has spoken to us in son. Do we see it? In son. Now, you, 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 your Bible may say his son, and it will be italicized. In the Hebrew, I'm sorry, in the Greek, it's in weos. In, E-N, weos. The weos is the word for son. Just says in son. So, as I think I said this the other day, what language am I speaking? Are you hearing me speak to today? English. If I said, Guten Morgen, V. Gates. Who was that little bird over there who keeps talking? Das ist der deutsche Sprache. What? The German language. So if I say V. Gates, I'm speaking to you in German. German is my communication. It's got to be Daniel, okay? It's got to be Daniel. Say good morning to us in your native tongue. Ekaro. Ekaro. What is that? He's speaking to us in what language? Hmm? What's the name? Yeah, but Nigerian, can we say it that way? I mean, I. Yeah, but, okay, but we got it. He's speaking the language. When God speaks to us in Christ, Jesus is his literal language. What do we call him? He is the word of God. He is the language of God to us. We don't want to disassociate God and who he is from this man and make this man something of himself separate from God. Jesus is literally God's language to us. That means that everything that Jesus says is what? The father speaking to us. That means that every place that Jesus goes is what? The Father speaking to us. It means that everything that Jesus does or does not do is what? The Father is speaking to us. This is God's language to us. He himself, in himself, he himself is the very language of God to us. Amen? Amen. See, let's make it for what it is, bigger than how we usually think of Jesus. He spoke to us in Son. Whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. This is talking about the Son. And he is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of, and I just said, God's divine nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, that's the introduction to Hebrews. And everything in Hebrews that follows that is built out of that, is a consequence of that. That is the foundation upon which this speech rests. He lays out the truth. The foundation is this. And then he begins to build a theological house upon that foundation. So Jesus, from those verses, verses 1 through 3, wasn't it 1 through 3 I just read to you? 
Yes. Jesus is shown, is immediately proclaimed to be superior in every and any way. Why? Why? Because he is God's literal language, which means that he himself is God. You see, when I am speaking to you, I am speaking to you out of my very nature. Correct? Do we see that? I'm not speaking to you out of Stephen Fortenberry's nature. I'm not speaking to you out of Beth's nature. I'm speaking to you out of my very nature. So what you're hearing me is a proclamation of something about Peter Davidson. So when Jesus is who he is in all of the, the you know, aspects of who he is as a man upon this earth, the son of God is that upon the earth, we are hearing God's very nature. So he's superior because he is the very nature of God clothed in a human. Son of God, son of man. So he's superior and he goes down. In chapters 1 and 2, he's superior to the angels. Now, we're not going to go into background, but the Judaism had developed a theology of angelology. And there are angels, yes, there are. But they were talking about the angels being God's mediators. and what, what. No, he's superior to the angels. Jesus in chapters what? Three and four is superior to what? To whom? Moses. He's superior to Moses. He's superior to the promise of the promised land. He's superior. Not only is he superior to Moses in chapters five, six, and what? Seven. Do you see it there? He's superior to whom? The priesthood in the form of, remember, Melchizedek. He's superior to the priesthood. And finally, in the last two chapters there, what are they? Eight, nine, I mean, the last three chapters, eight, nine, and ten. He's superior to the sacrificial system, the Levitical legislation, the sacrifices. He's superior to all of that. This is, this is these four elements are the fundamentals of Judaism. These are the fundamentals. Listen to me. Hear what I'm saying. These four are the fundamentals that foreshadow the Son of God as the Son of Man. These four fundamentals speak of the very person and work and accomplishment of the Son of God as the son of man upon the earth. These are the elementary teachings about Christ. They are those teachings which, upon which this, the identity of God himself in Christ is built. Do, we, do you get that? ABCs are the fundamentals of what? Our language. And so when we speak and construct words and write them out, Etc. We are dealing with the revelation and the outworking of fundamentals. Jesus is the walking fulfillment of the ABCs of Judaism. The ABCs of Judaism, when put together correctly, and they can't be put together correctly until they come together in Jesus, then the ABCs that are scattered, if you would, throughout Judaism are gathered together in the, in the name Jesus. And there we see, ah, that's what Jesus means. He's superior. 
Why is he superior? Because he fulfills it all. Why does he fulfill it? Because he is the son of God as the son of man. Now, that's very significant. Why? Because the danger that is alluded to, and we're going to have to stop in a moment. The danger that is alluded to is departing from Jesus to go back and embrace the fundamentals as if they are the fulfillment. Don't go back, these Jewish people, to the fundamentals and embrace the fundamental as if the fundamental now is the fulfillment. Do we see that? Or were you with me on this? Very important to know this. Why? Because when you read Hebrews, you're going to read some stuff that's going to scare the hell out of you. Literally, I mean the hell out of you. Or maybe scare it back into you. Because it's going to look like, oh my God, I don't have a chance. The question is this, this. Not did you sin the second time the day the same way. That's an issue. But the question is this. Are you abandoning Jesus and saying, no, I'm giving Jesus up. I'm going back to the fundamentals. I believe that these four fundamentals are God totally and completely rejecting Christ. He's not the fulfillment. I'm going to embrace the fundamentals. That's what's going on in the book of Hebrews among these people. Do you have the four, uh, sorry, the five warnings in your in your? And I'm not going to go in, into Hebrews into detail. When, that's not what we're talking about. But he gives five warnings here, and you see them listed there. Each one of these is a warning about leaving Christ. Are you with me on this? Very important. These warnings are given to protect and encourage against rejecting Jesus as well as warning believers about ignoring Jesus. Now, how many of us would say, look, this, this is great, David. I'm glad you taught this. Thank you so much. But I, I'm not being tempted to leave Jesus. So where is it for me? May I correct that for you? Every temptation to sin. Could I repeat that? What did I just say? I think it's in your notes. Every temptation to sin. Angel, may I say it one more time? Every temptation to sin is at its heart an invitation by Satan through the activities of your fallen flesh to finally come to a place of kicking Jesus out of your life. Every temptation is that purpose in mind. Never think that any temptation is innocuous. In other words, it's just, it's just one of those bad things I did. Don't you know I have a bad personality and I say things occasionally. Don't ever think that this is not our issue because as the latter days of Jesus' return get closer and closer, the fires of opposition are increasing. And the temptations to abandon the faith. Something happens to you and you're upset with God because of your illness, because of finance, because of relationships, because of politics, because and all of a sudden you become really itchy with God. You know what I mean? As this stuff increases, the temptation to abandon the faith 
increases. Let us be very, very, very sober-minded. We have got to be clothed with the Holy Spirit, the power of the Word of God by the Holy Spirit. So let's, let me read this last couple of statements. In this regard about this temptation, what's, we're, we're, in, we're in the foothills of this today. Do we see it? We're in the foothills. In this regard, we must be careful to hold two verses in proper balance. Hold two verses in proper balance. Because I know what you're thinking. Can we lose our salvation? No, we can't lose it. That is not the question. Listen to these two verses. Mark 13, 13. Are these in your notes? Are they in your notes? All right, I may have left them out on the original. Write down Mark 13, 13. You just look it up. Let me read it to you. Very important. Hold both of these verses in proper biblical balance. I didn't say balance, biblical balance. You will be hated by all because of my name, Jesus said. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. You got that? Listen to this verse. 1 Corinthians 1, 7 and 9. I'm sorry, 7 and 8. 1 Corinthians 1, 7 and 8. Jesus Christ will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> you must endure to the end. Be careful. You will be confirmed to the end. Do we see that? We are saved by the blood of Christ applied and made real in our lives through the gift of God, God's faith, Ephesians 2.8. And we are maintained and kept in Christ by faith. Don't ask the question, well, what if I do that? Ask the question, say this. Don't ask these questions that God is not going to give you a satisfactory answer because he doesn't answer. Well, what if this on time? Say this. I am trusting God to keep me by faith. I will walk by faith. I will depend on my God by faith. I am not going to be going to heaven just for any reason. I'm going because I have been saved by grace through the gift of faith. And God is going to keep me all the way by faith. But faith has obedience. The obedience of faith, Romans 1.5. Faith is obedience. Do we see how it's wrapped up together? Do I understand it? No, Troy, I don't get it. But I know it's true. Next week, we'll continue with this.